Amen. Thanks, Pastor Andy. Good morning, Living Waters. Hey, we are awake on this wonderful day where we lost sleep. So how many of you guys are excited about daylight savings? Anyone? Wow. Less. Hey, we got one. Woo! Okay, so we got one person that's excited about daylight savings, but I'm glad you made it here. Uh, honestly, I was shocked at the first service. I mean, they were awake. Can you believe it? You know, we've always kind of joked that the first service is like the people, they get up at like 4.30 in the morning and they, you know, they got to eat their oat bran and they got to, they, you know, they got to watch the news and then they got to read the newspaper. So they've been waiting for church to happen. So it just sped up their day a bit. But go ahead and open your Bible, if you would, uh, to Matthew chapter 12 today is where we're going to be. And uh, before I get going, I, I, I'd like to just introduce a little bit about myself and my family and who we are. Because for some of you guys, you know who we are. You've been around for a long time. Debbie and I have been around for a long time. Debbie and I, we joined Living Waters Core Group before the church was even named in 2008. And we were, from my knowledge, the only dating couple that was brought onto a core group of a church. We weren't even engaged yet. Now, if you younger men or even older men who God's leading and aspire to plan a church, I would encourage you not to recruit dating couples, Okay. Because they're young and stupid and dramatic, okay? And that was us. And so I just say, say that out loud. Now, God, in his sovereignty, worked the whole thing out. So uh, God's a really big deal. But in, when I was, it, it was 2008, about this time of year, and uh, Debbie and I, we met with Pastor Josh. So you got to think contextually, not Pastor Josh, who you know today, 26-year-old Pastor Josh and 22-year-old Cole Albright meet to talk about this church that's going to go into the Riverwoods neighborhood in South Des Moines. And he invites Debbie and I to join the core group. And we did that. We signed up for one year, one year. We're going to serve time, talent, treasure, faithfully serve for one year. And in one year, um, it was a whirlwind for Debbie and I, as it was for pretty much everybody else on that core group. We were, we were knocking on doors and meeting people in the community and holding babies and getting puked on. Debbie and I got engaged that year. I finished my coursework at Faith. I was at Bible College. And we got married on January 9th of 2009, six months after the church kicked off, in the middle of a blizzard, okay? Like, worst blizzard of the year that year. And six months later, we completed our one year with the church, and we thought, hot dog, we've done it. We did a whole year helped get this thing going off the ground. God was doing amazing things. People are getting saved. The church was growing. And um, Debbie and I thought we were going to head to the mission field, right? We we're going to go to South America. And uh, God, in his sovereignty, changed that plan because we were young and dumb and stupid and arrogant. And though we were zealous and loved Jesus, we were ill-equipped to do anything effectively on a mission field. And we realized that and so we decided we're going to plug in here at Living Waters for maybe another year or two and see what God would do. And within those two years, our mindset changed from someday we're going to go to the mission field to this is our mission field. South Des Moines, we bought a house in the community. We started a business. We served faithfully through that whole time and um, not perfectly, faithfully. There's a difference, right? Okay. And... Uh, and God blessed the ministry that we did, and we were so blessed to serve alongside many of you guys. And so if you're new here in the last two years, you haven't seen us around as much because about two years ago, we sensed that God was finally leading us away from this place and towards South America yet again in a very 
long set of circumstances that I would love to share with you, but we're, our target field is Lima, Peru. It's, it's a city in South America, small town, 10 and a half million people. Barely notice the people, right? And uh, they have less than one-fifth the gospel influence in that city than we have here in Des Moines, which means for a population base, they should have nearly five times as many churches as what they have right now. And God's called us to go partner in a work to plant churches in unreached areas of Lima. And it turns out that God's used the last about 14 years now to train Debbie and I to do that. It wasn't that he had completely sidelined us like I thought, and that this was our mission field, though it has been, and we love this place, but he's just been training us. And we're so excited to go serve God in that way. Uh, guys, can you throw the throw my information up here. So here's my information. If you want to stay on top of our updates and stuff, you can email me and I will, I will, uh, you can go ahead and take a picture of that and stuff. Cause that's not going to stay up there, but, uh, email me. I'd love to get you on our updates list so that you can stay current with us. Some of you have had questions about where we're at funding wise, because prefield ministry means you go share the gospel and Jesus and the need with people and then people in churches and organizations partner with you in a financial way until you hit a point where you can launch. And we're getting really close to that point right now. And some of you have already partnered with us, and we so appreciate that. And we love you guys. And if you guys desire to partner with us, you can do that as well. Hit me with an email. Reach out to me. I would love to talk to you about what exactly we're going to do and what that means, okay? So that's all I got for you. If you didn't take a picture, you lost it. Go ahead and take that down. We're jumping into Matthew 12 today. Now, as we do our march towards Easter, last week you would have heard Pastor Josh. He preached on Matthew chapter 11, the end of the chapter, and he talked about a yoke, right? Do you guys remember he had that big wooden yoke and the like metal hooks and stuff on it? Okay, and what he talked about was that we are to, as if you're not a believer, you're to unyoke yourself from sin and you're to yoke yourself to Christ, right? And so you would be yoked with Christ. And that happens at the point of salvation. That is when Christ saves you from your sins and you begin to walk with Jesus. And his burden is light. And so as we continue on from that point, Matthew takes us to this next point in ministry that they were doing. And and, uh, and I want to walk you through this scene a little bit. Now, before we walk into this scene, I want to tell you a story to kind of contextualize some stuff because this scene is going to question the authority of Christ. Now, for us in modern day USA, Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, if you are somebody who has attended this church for any length of time, you know that Jesus is a big deal, okay? If you haven't attended this church, you've probably heard that Jesus is a big deal, okay? And if you don't know that, I'm going to tell you for the first time, Jesus is a really big deal. And what happens here is Jesus's authority is about to be questioned. Now, has your authority ever been questioned before? Mine has been questioned many a time. And I want to tell you about one such instance. So in that first year of the church plan of Living Waters, Debbie and I, we moved down to South Des Moines, but I was still working at a warehouse on the east side of Des Moines. And I had worked there through college. And during college, the first two years that I was at this warehouse, I had a, not a great attitude towards my work. Like I was a good worker. Okay. My numbers, you know, we tracked everything numbers. Like my numbers spoke for themselves as far as work ethic goes, but as far as heart's attitude towards people, I couldn't have cared less about anybody in that warehouse besides myself. I mean, honestly, I punched in, I hated the job, I was stacking boxes on pallets and putting pallets on trucks, and that's what I did all day. And I 
hated that job, but it put food on the table and it paid my bills. And I went in and out and just didn't, I didn't really talk to many people. I didn't care to talk to many people. The people that talked to me, I didn't care how the conversation went. You ever had somebody like that at your work? That was me, okay? Because I was looking at it as this is something that I'm checking off my list that I got to do. And about two years into that, I felt convicted and I started to operate differently. I felt like the Lord, the Lord had put me in a place where I needed to change my attitude towards those around me. And so I started acting different at work, right? I would come in and I would actually be polite to people around me. I know, shocking, right? You had to be polite to people. And I actually put people above the work. And then when I worked, I tried to do it diligently in a way that was thoughtful towards my bosses, you know, not just about getting it done and I don't care what happens. And I started to dress differently too, you know, because when you work in a warehouse with a bunch of guys, you can look like a trash hauler the whole time. Nothing wrong with trash hauling, but there's a certain dress code for that, right? And so I thought, you know, I'll just, when my clothes wear out, instead of continuing to wear them like I'm, you know, Raggedy Ann or whatever, like I'm going to, I'll change my clothes, right? And just, just some basic stuff. And if you're a young person and you're like, that's odd, try it. Your boss will actually be impressed because that's what happened. So in our company, the manager of the warehouse, he was the assistant vice president of the company. And then from there, he had all the shift managers. And then I was well below them. And so here I am about 23, 24 years old. And my boss, who was the assistant vice president, now I still answered to the supervisors, he was going to leave and go on, I don't know, vacation or trip or something for two days. And he had been impressed with my work, which brought a lot of criticism my direction. And what he did is he, he came to me one day and said, hey, I'm going to be gone for two days. I want you to run the warehouse. Now, put yourself in my shoes for a second. I wasn't doing a happy dance at all, okay? I was like, what? You want me to run the warehouse while you're gone? Like, what does that mean? And he was like, I want you to do my job. I want you to do what I do while I'm gone. He somehow, I don't know what possessed him, he thought that I was equipped to do his job, okay? And not only that, he left two hours after informing me of this and didn't tell anybody else that he had had this conversation with me, okay? You can imagine the situation, okay? You can imagine as I went about trying to do this job how my authority was being questioned, right? We enter the text today, and we're going to see the Pharisees begin to question Jesus' authority. And though it was justified that I was, as a 23-year-old, being questioned by my superiors, my supervisors, who the youngest of them was seven years older than me, we will see how God and how Jesus Christ deals with the questioning of his authority. So let's read on. Matthew chapter 12, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which is it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read... In the law, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against how to destroy him. And this is God's word. So as we jump into the text today and we discuss the authority of Christ, I want you, if you catch nothing else about today's sermon, is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? I'm going to say it again. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, for us in modern-day America, that might not mean very much to you or to me until you understand Lord, this is his authority, and what the Sabbath is, right? Like, why should that matter to us? What's a Sabbath? Well, good question. So, for starters, the Sabbath was something that was established by God in the Old Testament, and it was established at the point of creation. In six days, God created, and on the seventh day, he rested. And then you jump over to Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, and you, well, Exodus chapter 20. How many of you guys know what's in Exodus 20? Anyone? It's kind of a big piece of scripture. Anyone ever heard of the Ten Commandments? There we go. Ten Commandments. Every, nobody, nobody's heard. Oh, okay. We got a few. Okay. People know what the Ten Commandments are, right? You know, in there, well, you're not supposed, you know, can you name all of them? Most of us can't. You're like, well, you're not supposed to murder and uh, some stuff about loving God. And okay. Commandment number four, Exodus 20, verse eight, write it down. So you can look it up later and you read all the rest of the commandments. But I'm going to go ahead and read to you starting in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. So we get a grasp on why the Sabbath was important to the Jews in Israel. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy is pure. Holy is blameless. Holy is holy, right? It's, It's everything that embodies what God desires for us. Okay, verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That word sojourner means the foreigner, okay? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay? So God established in the Ten Commandments. Okay, this isn't the Levitical law that has like a hundred different, actually, it's got way more than a hundred. There's actually 613 commandments in the early Old Testament scripture. 613. Okay? But then there's the Big Ten, right? Like, you know, the Big Ten, like, kind of like the Big Ten Conference. No, not really. But the Big Ten was like the important Ten Commandments. Like, these are the basics. These are what every Jew would have had to have memorized at least. And they're calling them out on one of the Ten Commandments and saying, Jesus, look, your, your guys, they're breaking that. Now, what they were doing is they were accusing the disciples 
of working on the Sabbath. Now, you and I can see past that, right? Like, they're walking through a grain field, and they're snacking, okay? Like, the disciples are hungry, and they're snacking. They're grabbing. Now, how many of you guys, you know what grazing's like, right, in America? You have game day food, if it's like the Hawkeye game, or the Cyclone game, or whichever game you like to watch. Like, you know, at, at the Albright House growing up, sometimes, especially the Iowa-Iowa State game, there would be like this whole smorgasbord of things that were put out on the kitchen island. And you would graze on this all day long, right? It usually started a few hours before kickoff, and then food kept getting added to it, and there was all sorts of good things. He kind of grazed on this stuff, okay? The disciples are walking with Jesus, and from our understanding of this text is it looks like they were headed towards synagogue. Now, I don't know if they missed breakfast or lunch or what time of day it was, but we do know they were hungry, and they're going through, and they're doing like some Old Testament or some New Testament grazing, rather, right? They're walking through a field, they're picking heads of grain, and they're eating them, okay? Now, how many of you guys think grazing is work? I mean, I don't ever go to a Hawkeye game day thing and graze at the, you know, at the, at the bar top or whatever it is and, and think, wow, this is a lot of work, right? Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm laboring so much to put this much food in my body. Usually I'm telling myself, you better stop. Like, this is very enjoyable and you better knock it off. There's a reason you're about 25 pounds overweight, right? So these are conversations I have in my head. I don't know if you guys have these, but maybe I'm just crazy. So that said, they were calling, the Pharisees are calling these guys out on breaking the law. Now, before we jump into being critical of the Pharisees, which... We always are critical of the Pharisees, right? They're never really presented in the scripture in a really good light. But I want to I wanna back up a little bit and help each of us understand why a Pharisee in the Jewish culture was important, right? Because why in the world is Jesus always having problems with these Pharisees, okay? So let's think about what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee at the time is a religious leader, okay? They're somebody that has broad sections of scripture that is memorized. They know it by heart. How many of you guys respect people that know God's word well? Okay, I do. I respect people that really know God's word, okay? So you're like, okay, well, maybe there's something there, okay? Beyond that, they were known as wonderful theologians, which meant they were very, very well educated, Okay? How many of you guys have ever met somebody that was almost too smart for their own good? Right? Little intimidating. Little intimidating, especially if you wanted to maybe suggest that they might be off in something they were thinking, right? You know you're going to get like the fire hose opened up on you as they drop all of their knowledge on you all at once, right? That you weren't quite ready to, to take on. You're like, well, are you sure about that? And they're like, you know what? Let me tell you how sure I am about that right? So you have a little bit of respect and maybe a little bit of intimidation of who they are and what they know. Beyond that, they were seen doing multiple spiritual disciplines throughout the week. They would pray, not only publicly, but also in synagogue and in temple. They would do this. They would lead people in prayer. They would visit widows and orphans. They would do a lot of things. We find out from Jesus that most of them in his time weren't doing it with the right heart motives, but people don't see the heart. God sees the heart. People see the outward, right? And so if you're a person who sees someone that's visiting widows and orphans and praying with people and seems to love God and has large amounts of scripture, 
known. They were like your, your phone a friend too, right? Have you guys ever read scripture and kind of scratched your head like this? Or like, I have no idea what that means. And maybe you were curious enough to phone a friend, right? Maybe, maybe you phoned Chad to clean. You're like, hey, he's our teaching pastor. And you're like, hey, Chad, I ran into this passage in Genesis 6 talking about the sons of God. What is that all about? And Chad's like, ah, oh, crud. Because Chad knows that that is still a disputed text in various formats. And so he could, he could get into that with you, and, but it's someone you would respect. So what I don't want to do is elevate the Pharisees to say, be a Pharisee. But I don't want to miss the fact that they were well-respected people, that they were people that were recognized by the, by the community as spiritual people that loved God, that wanted to do what was right. Yet these are the ones that are questioning the Son of God, okay? So understand the conundrum they find themselves in. And that's because they see Jesus, who is kind of this rogue rabbi, People follow him. They hear him teach like no one has ever taught. He seems to have a mastery of scripture that he ought not have because he hasn't been through all the proper educational processes that a Pharisee has been through. He hasn't spent the time doing the things that these guys did. And so from a cultural standpoint, they're like, whoa, how did he jump, jump line? How did he jump rank? There's something wrong about this guy. But the problem is they're having a hard time refuting him because Jesus is going about healing people as he goes as well. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's turning water into wine. He's doing all sorts of miracles that are hard to explain. On one hand, they want to say he's doing it in the power of Satan. And on the other hand, they want to say he's doing it in the power of God. And depending on the day, they're not even in agreement amongst themselves. And so these Pharisees, these local Pharisees, They want to call Jesus out right now. You are missing one of the top, like it's commandment number four, Jesus. This isn't like we're going through all of scripture. Commandment four, you don't work on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, instead of unloading on them like they might if they were questioned, right? Because Jesus could have. In fact, Leviticus specifically talks about how it's totally acceptable to pick heads of grain on a Sunday or on a Sabbath day rather. Instead of going there, he starts to speak their language because he wants, Jesus wants them to understand that he understands scripture and that they ought to understand scripture, right? Because Jesus's perspective is better than ours and is better than the Pharisees. And so how does Jesus respond when he's questioned, right? Well, here we go. We jump in. He says, Have you not read? Now, I'm going to stop right there for a second and just comment on that. Have you not read to the Pharisees would have been kind of like a, 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 in their world, it would have been kind of like a bless your heart, right? Like you ever had that, that Southern lady in your life, bless your heart, right? Before she tells you how wrong you are, okay? Like it's kind of a polite way of saying you're wrong, Okay, some people would call it passive aggressive. Okay, I grew up with a mother who is actually in the back, by the way, embarrassed now because she does this frequently. She blesses people's heart right before she tells them how wrong they are. Okay, thanks for coming, mom. Hope you're embarrassed. (laughs) And guess what? So Jesus says, Have you not read? Are you kidding me? These are Pharisees. They've read all of it, they have large portions of scripture memorized. Of course, they have read. So what David did when he was hungry. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God. He ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, and nor for those who are with him. So David, you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 4 through 6, you'll read this account. Okay, David, who was going to be the king of Israel, but wasn't yet, is on the run from Saul. Saul's out to kill him. And so he flees in haste. He takes no food, no water, no sword, no armor, nothing. He's got a few guys with him, and he's off to the races. And he's traveled for about two days, and he hasn't eaten a thing. Now, how many of you guys have fasted for two days recently? Anyone? Of course not. Oh, yeah, we got one. Hard to do, right? Super hard. You get headaches. But imagine that you're on the run, so you're traveling by foot the whole time doing this. It'd be exhausting. And so he shows up at the house of God, and he lies to the priests, okay? The priests say, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm on an urgent mission for Saul, okay? No, he wasn't. His only urgent mission having anything to do with Saul was just not getting his head cut off, okay? I'm on an urgent mission from Saul, and it was so urgent, I couldn't even take provisions, and we need food. And the priest says, we don't have any food right now here. Like, we're, we're empty. The pantry's closed, only food that is actually here right now is the bread of the presence that sits before the Lord, which is only lawful for the priest to eat. But the priest didn't shut him down. The priest said what? He said, well, hey, he was concerned about the purity and the hearts of the men that were with David. He said, hey, what did the priest say? He said, I'm concerned if you've, kept, if you've been sexually immoral with women on your journey. He didn't say, I'm concerned that you're not priests, though that was the rule. He said, I'm concerned that you've been impure in your journey. And David assured him, no, we've been traveling. We've not been up to no good. And the priest willfully gave him the bread of the presence. Those priests were later killed for doing that. And the Bible does not hold David as guilty of their blood, even though he lied to them. The Bible shows very clearly that Saul was responsible for the blood of those priests that died for doing this. And I share that with you because Jesus, in a snapshot, tells them a truth that they already knew. Hey, have you not read when David did this? He didn't give them the whole story like I just gave you. He said, Here's, here it is. And instantly they were able to contextualize what Jesus was saying to them. He was saying they didn't stand condemned. Or, and he gives them example number two. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple, what's the temple? Everyone know? It's where the presence of God was to dwell so that people could have intercession between God and man through the high priests, through a sacrifice. God's literal presence would come down into the holy of holies of the temple. And Jesus is talking to them about this place. It's a very special place. And he says, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. Well, what do you mean by that? They profane the Sabbath, right? You're not supposed to work on a Sabbath. We know that. We're to keep it holy. It's to be a day of rest. It's to be a day of reflection. It's a gift from the Lord. How are they profaning it? Well, the priests, that might sound like a really cool job, but you need to think of like a glorified slaughterhouse employee, okay? A glorified slaughterhouse employee. What do I mean by that? What's the job of a priest? The job of a priest is to sacrifice animals in a proper fashion before the Lord. And it was a bloody, bloody job. 
Part of their job was catching blood. Part of their job was dividing up animals and dealing with entrails and which parts to burn and which parts not to burn and which parts to roast and not roast. And so these guys are working their tails off every Sabbath as people bring animals. Live animals came in, no live animals left, okay? This is all being done by hand, okay? Now, if you're wondering what it's like to butcher live animals, you need to talk to your pastor, Andy, because he's pretty good at that sort of thing. I don't know if you know this, but Andy is deep down an Iowa redneck that loves messing with that kind of thing. And you know what? His wife, Julie, is nothing to scoff at. I've heard lots of chicken stories about buckets of heads, okay? But you can ask him if it's a messy job. It's a horrifically messy job. And they would go into temple and do this. Aren't you glad we don't go into temple to sacrifice animals, that Andy and Julie don't come down here and butcher stuff in front of us and burn it all up in front of us, that you got to come into a clean environment with no smell of animal, grab your cup of coffee and your donut, and come on in and hear a sermon. I'm thankful for that, and I hope you guys are as well. And so Jesus points out their hypocrisy, right? Because Jesus' perspective of the scripture And the understanding of God's heart is better than ours. And my question for you today is, what's your perspective of Scripture? What's your perspective of God's words? What are the things that God says to you? That he says, hey, these are areas in your life where you need to be walking in step with my heart that you might not be. You know, many times we come into a place like this, into a church, out of obligation, we're checking a box, right? Like if I don't come here, oh man, I missed the last three weeks. I better get at least one Sunday in this month or Josh is going to be at my door wondering what's wrong. And, and then I'm going to have to give the whole story about how my month was atrocious. Or man, I better get to my small group because my small group leader, he'll be, he'll be bugging me, right? And I, I want to make sure that I'm faithful. Or maybe your heart's attitude is like, man, I, uh, I know I'm supposed to read my Bible, but I really don't want to. So I'm just going to open my Bible app and then close my Bible app so that way it looks like I read my Bible. You know, like where, where's your heart today, believer in Christ? And I, I hope I didn't give you guys any evil ideas. Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> but where's your heart at today, believer in Christ? Is, is being with God, is spending time with God a burden and a chore and a list of do's and don'ts? For you, what the Pharisees has done is they were so learned in scripture and in practical theology, that is how you apply it today, that they started to make up rules. And they said, well, here's scripture. And in order to, to fulfill scripture, we're going to add this rule. We're going to add this rule. And we're going to add this rule, this rule, this rule. And then over time, what they did is they culturally elevated their rules. And so that they were on par with scripture And what they were doing in this instance was they were not calling out a scriptural rule from God that was in line with God's heart. They were calling out one of their cultural norms and saying, look, Jesus, you broke God's law. Do we not do that ourselves? We read the scripture and we think this is how I should practically apply it in my life. And then since I'm, and then as you gain discipline in applying a certain scripture in your life, you begin to elevate your disciplines and your own thoughts to a place that's on par with Scripture, but it's not after God's heart. We do that ourselves. We think our opinions are so important. If you don't believe that, start reading people's social media feed, right? 
How many of you guys think that people on social media, and that's all of us, by the way, or all of you or me included, where we would, there, there's those friends you have that they use their social media platform to espouse opinions, whether it has to do with politics or whether it has to do with social norms or whether it has to do with viruses or whether it has to do with whatever it is. And it's not that you're not entitled to have an opinion, but remember that your opinion and your practice is not on par with scripture. It's yours and it must be put in check by God's word, which means sometimes no matter how right you think you are, if you can't prove it in scripture, maybe you should just shut up. Sorry, kids, I said that word. But as I speak that, I'm speaking it to myself as well. Because I do the same thing in a very sinful way. I put my own thoughts on par with Scripture instead of looking at God's word for what it is. And Jesus, because he's Jesus, he knows God's heart. He references David, who was a man after God's heart. He references the priests who are desecrating the temple, but they're held blameless. Why? Because God was not all about the rule as much as the heart of the rule. And so he says this, he goes on and he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. You see, he quotes one of the prophets to them. He's speaking their theological language. He quotes Hosea 6.6 and he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus desired mercy, not sacrifice. And then he calls them out. He says, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What did he say to them in that moment? The thing they didn't want to believe. They wanted to believe that Jesus was guilty of some sort of sin. Did they not? And Jesus was not guilty. And he calls himself the guiltless. You would not have condemned the guiltless. He's talking about himself. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So as, and he states that boldly, he claims his authority verbally. Can you imagine how these Pharisees felt? They didn't come to Jesus to be taught or to hear from him. They came to criticize and he shut them down using scripture. He said, this is where God's heart is. This is how God operates. And this is how you're being a hypocrite. And in so doing, you condemn the guiltless, which was Jesus Christ himself. He said, for, and he says two things that would have just popped him right in the mouth. He says, something greater than the temple is here. He was talking about himself. Something greater than the temple is here. He calls himself the guiltless, and then he claims his authority. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so now when you hear that overarching big idea of the whole sermon, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you get a little taste of that? Jesus is claiming his authority because he's sinless. He's claiming his authority because he is greater than the temple. The thing that the Jews said, that's where we can meet the presence of God. And Jesus like, I'm standing right here. And he claims that authority. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there. And you know what's great? You know what's great after you have an awkward interaction with somebody is to then turn around and get to have another one, right? Like how many of you guys love that? Have you ever had that? Like maybe you like honk at somebody in traffic and then you find out like, oh, we're both going to Hy-Vee. <sighs> and they like pull up next to you in the parking lot. You're like, oh, crud. <laughs> you ever been there? Okay. 
We're going to have a kind of an occurrence like that where, because he went on from there and entered their synagogue. Ah, crud. He followed us in. Darn it. And a man was there with a withered hand. And these guys, they didn't give up. You got to give them some credit. Like they really believed in their cause because they didn't give up at all. And they're like, all right, opportunity number two to accuse him of breaking the fourth commandment. Watch this. He was known for healing people. We got this guy, Joe here. He's got a withered hand. We're going to see how he operates with Joe. You know, because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Certainly healing is work, right? A man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful? Because they kind of had this idea like, oh, they're going to He's going to heal this guy and we're going to get him because that's working. That's physician's work. Physicians are supposed to rest too. They're not under, they don't get a pass. Sure, David got a pass. Sure, the priests get a pass, but physicians don't get a pass. And so they try to entrap him and they ask, well, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, you guys are from Iowa, right? You've seen farms, yes? Everyone's seen a farm? Okay, if you live in Iowa and haven't seen a farm, please open your eyeballs, okay? They're everywhere, okay? Not far from where I grew up, there was a sheep farm. In my sophomore year of high school, we took a little field trip out to the sheep farm, and there was a sheep standing in the corner of, I don't know, they had this fenced-in area or whatever. He's standing, he's just staring at the corner. All the other sheep were kind of herded together, doing their thing, grazing. Sheep standing in the corner, just staring off into the corner. Turns out the sheep was lost, okay? Sheep didn't know. It needed to just, you know, turn around and like, oh, there's my... And, and it turns out sheep are so dumb... That, that sheep probably, the farmer explained to us, he probably would have stood there until it died had he not gone out and turned the darn sheep around or sent his dog out to go, you know, scare the sheep into accidentally turning around or whatever it is because sheep are dumb, okay? They just are. And so Jesus gives them an example because a lot of these guys would have had sheep. This, is, this was a farming community. A lot of these guys would have had personal sheep because it was an important part of the diet of the day. And it was an important part of the sacrificial system, right? It's hard to sacrifice a lamb for the, for the covering of your sin at temple if you don't have one. So they, pretty much everybody had sheep, or if they were too poor, they had ways of getting sheep. Everybody's familiar with how dumb sheep are. So the idea that a sheep would fall into a pit on a Sunday was like not a big surprise. Like, I mean, sheep are dumb. They're like, oh, look, there's a pit. I'll just go ahead and sure, I'll walk in. Why not? You know, like, I mean, sheep are not bright. And so these guys had all had this experience, right? They want to talk practical theology. Is this lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, I'm going to talk to you about sheep. I'm going to bring this down to earth for you. How many of you, if you had a sheep fall into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't reach your hand out and pull it out? Right? Why? Because he had just told them, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And just like a human who would have mercy on their animal. And for a lot of you guys, you don't have sheep, but a lot of you, you have pets, right? You have dogs and cats, okay? If your cat gets its head stuck in the dryer vent on a Sunday, you're going to leave it till Monday? No, right? If your dog gets hung up on a fence, are you going to get that dog out? Yeah, it's going to happen, right? Because we care for our animals. Lawrence is laughing back there because he thinks I would leave it for the next day. (laughs) 
I'm not a huge fan of dogs, full disclosure, okay? Been chased by too many dogs. And uh, he, he makes a very valid point, like, why wouldn't you do that? How much more, and he asked them a very simple question, how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see, Jesus again points them back to the heart of God. The heart of God is this, the Sabbath, though it is, yes, it is one of the Ten Commandments, but why is it one of the Ten Commandments? It's one of the Ten Commandments because the Sabbath is a gift of God for man. Did you know God, he believes from his own example and his own character that you can get all of your work done in six days. There's enough hours in six days to get your work done so that on one of seven days a week, you can pause, you can rest, you can be unburdened, you can hear from God, you can worship God, you can enjoy your family, you can take a moment for your own thoughts. Some of us in this life are so busy. Have you ever said, oh man, there's not enough hours in the day? I've said that. There's not enough days in the week. I've said that, but God's word tells us differently. It says there's absolutely enough days in the week. You get six and God gifts the Sabbath to man and says, keep this holy. Keep this for what it should be. It's a gift. Many times we think of a commandment as like a list of don't do's. And this is a list of like, hey, this is your gift. Don't go messing it up. And we see it in our culture, people criticize those who take days off, don't they? Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, they get tons of heat. How many of you wish they were open on Sunday, right? But they're not. They take the day off because the Bible was very clear about it. And they seek to honor Sabbath rest. And he says, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then Jesus takes action. Not only had he claimed his authority that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, but then he demonstrates his authority because he turns to that man. How easy is it to claim authority, right? Like when I got posted up in this position at a warehouse as a 23-year-old kid telling all my supervisors what to do for two days. This is a terrible experience, by the way. Terrible experience. But I got to declare to them that... Rob put me in charge. Sorry. Like, that's my boss. Rob did this. Like, this wasn't from me. This was from Rob. And Jesus declares them. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Easy thing to say, right? Rob says, I'm in charge. Easy thing to say. But then Jesus demonstrates it with his power and his authority. And he looks at that man and he just tells him, stretch that hand out. That hand that's been crippled for who knows how many years, that has had no function, that has held you back, that has not allowed you to work, it's probably been in pain. This man's probably been in suffering over this ailment. Whatever was wrong with his hand, maybe it got crushed when he was a kid, who knows? But back in those days, when your hand gets crushed, it's done. It's dead to you. And this man had a withered hand. The Bible doesn't tell us why, it just tells us that it was. And he stretched it out. It was healthy like the other. And the Pharisees, how did they respond? Oh, wow. Well, now we should believe. He's now demonstrated his authority, right? No. They went out and conspired of how to destroy him. Question for you today. How do you respond to Jesus when he calls out 
his authority in your life and how he demonstrates his authority in your life. How do you respond to him today, right? Like, does Jesus have a place when he says, hey, take Sabbath rest, it's a gift for you, and you're like, nah, I got way too much to do, Jesus. I don't want to take time off in my week. I got too many things to do. And I'm not, I'm not declaring Sunday or Saturday or whatever. I'm just saying, like, do you take moments? Do you take time? Do you take a day to reflect on the goodness of God and enjoy what he intended for you? Believer, do you see Jesus for, for who he is, that he is that authoritative savior, that, that your ideas of how you think you need to accomplish God's will are not on par with what God's word says? It's not. Even our best ideas fall short of God's word. And you know what? Jesus, he, he's so good as he demonstrates this. It, it brings us right back to what Pastor Josh was preaching on last week where he was talking about being yoked with him. And I want to read this to you. It says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. How many of you guys feel like you've had a week like that? Like I have labored I've had stress, I've had anxiety, my marriage is, I'm having fights with my wife, my kids won't obey, my job stinks, I might lose my job, inflation's out the roof, I don't know how I'm going to afford gas money, I better buy a different car, I might need to move my house, I've got all of these stressors going on in life. Jesus calls to you. He says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. If you're a believer in Christ today, do you remember the day that you yoked up with Jesus? The peace that you felt in that day? The fact that he desired to save you from your sin, to unburden you from that? And you know what he granted you? He granted you literally a Sabbath rest. He grants that to you. He grants you this peace, not just a day of the week, but a peace to know that someday you will stand in eternity with God, not condemned, forgiven, because he is the guiltless one and we're the guilty ones. And if you're an unbeliever here today, let me tell you this, Jesus desires to save you today. He desires that you see him for who he is today. He wants you to come to him today. He wants to unburden you. And what does that mean? Well, it means that you get to respond not like the Pharisees did. So, you know, forget it, Jesus. I got my own plan. I got my own life trajectories. I've got my own ideas. I've got my own things that are on par with your word. It's to humbly submit and say, Jesus, you are Lord of the Sabbath. You are Lord. You have this. This is yours and to realize that he desires mercy and not sacrifice, that he desires that we do good always, even on the Sabbath. And so as we wrap up and we, we switch to a time of reflection, I just want to ask a couple of questions really briefly, and then I'm going to sit down, and Brandon and crew, they're going to come up, and Andy will dismiss you. But as we, um, as we close up, if you're a believer, if you're a believer today, how is your attitude towards your opinions and how you're going to accomplish the Christian life? Is that on par with Scripture? Have you forgotten that he's your authority? If so, repent of that. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today would be a great day to trust him for the first time. Don't be a Pharisee. Walk with Jesus.